Um, we're in the book of Joshua, if you want to open chapters 10 through 12, but I want to start, uh, I want to get us into the story for the day uh, by telling you a joke. Here we go. King Kong. You guys know King Kong, right? Big gorilla. King Kong is walking down the beach, and you, you won't be surprised to know that um, all of the people on the beach are running away. You know, pro tip, if King Kong is walking down the beach towards you, you're going to want to run away. That's what you're going to want to do. But there was one young woman who was asleep, and so she didn't realize that King Kong was walking down the beach towards her. And King Kong sees this woman, and he thinks to himself, oh my goodness, this woman is so beautiful. Her hair is beautiful. Her eyelashes are beautiful. Her lips are beautiful. King Kong is immediately in love with this woman. So he bends down, and he scoops her up. And that, of course, wakes her up. And you can imagine She's a little frightened to be woken up in the hand of King Kong. So she screams, ah! And King Kong says, no, 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 don't worry. I want to marry you. That's the end of the joke. Now, appropriately, I just love Jim Golden's laughter. It's just... Appropriately, that wasn't like you guys didn't laugh all that much, and that's okay. Here's the reason I just told you that joke in translation. You just heard a translation of the joke from its original language into English. I'm going to tell the joke a second time, but this time I want you to watch it in the original language as our ASL interpreter Sue tells it in its original language, American sign language. So I'm going to tell it again, but don't look at me. Look at the original language. Good? King Kong is walking down the beach. And all of the people on the beach are freaking out, and they're running away. But there's one young woman who is asleep. And so she doesn't know to get up and run away. And King Kong comes down the beach, and he looks, and he sees this beautiful young woman. And he thinks to himself, oh my goodness, this woman is gorgeous. Her hair is gorgeous. Her eyelashes are gorgeous. Her lips, so beautiful. So King Kong um, walks up, and he bends down, and he picks the woman up. And he's holding this woman in his hand when she wakes up. And not surprisingly, she's incredibly frightened. But King Kong says to her, no, 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 don't worry. I want to marry you. See, when you don't get it in the original language, it's just not as good of a joke. It turns out that what is true for a joke from sign language to English is actually true, I would say, of pretty much all language 
all storytelling, all narrative, kind of always. Uh, I, I would go so far as to say language and story are always contextual. The context is the language in which you're speaking or something was first spoken. The context is the time and the place and the geography and the community in which a story unfolds. The context is, for us, we live in modern America, speaking English, and we're reading stories in Scripture that are ancient Near Eastern, first written down in the Hebrew language. And so anytime we approach Scripture, and a lot of you know this, we've talked about this before, but anytime we approach Scripture, we need to remind ourselves that we are approaching it from out of context. And if we don't get the context right, just like this joke, we're going to miss the punchline. We're going to miss the main point of the story. Not every time. I mean, the main story, the main point of Scripture being that there is a God whose love for us is so great that he gave his life for us and has completely forgiven us of sins and wants to give that life to all people at all time. That message comes through loud and clear in the arc of Scripture. The youngest child can get it, but it's a message so great we can reflect on it and spend our whole lives embracing it more and more. However, while that overarching message is abundantly clear, there are specific stories that... If left out of context, we do run a risk of completely missing the point. And I think that we've seen some of that in Joshua, and we're going to see a little more of that today in Joshua chapters 10 through 12. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to remind us kind of where we're at in the story. I'm going to read a chunk of scripture. We're starting at Joshua uh, 10. We'll read verses 16 through 27, if you want to go there. And then we're going to reference uh, you know, a, a, a little bit of the verses that follow. Um, but then after reading it, I'm just going gonna, gonna to ask a few questions to help us get our heads more firmly around. What would this story have meant? What would have stood out? What would have been the main point? What would have what landed in the very first audience? I'm going to try to get us to the point where if we could imagine ourselves living thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East as those people, not as these people here, but as those people, what would that story mean for us today? So here's where we're at. Um, God has promised to the nation of Israel to give them a blessing. And the point of God's blessing is not just for the good of Israel, but it's actually a blessing for the good of all people. And the way God wants to do that is he's going to give Israel some land, the promised land, also known as the land of Canaan. Well, Joshua, the new young leader of God's people, has led Israel now into the promised land. And they have taken over the military outpost of uh, Jericho, of Ai, and they have their sights now on a number of the major cities in the area. However, as you heard last week, uh, when Todd Reisler preached, did a great job. I really appreciated, uh, Todd, your your personal sharing as well in the the sermon. The people in Canaan have heard about the Israelites' army, and they're freaking out. They're kind of getting scared. And so the kings of Canaan have formed a coalition. Because if you want to be a strong military, don't go on your own. Gather together with other kings, and it makes you stronger. However, there was one nation that was like, you know what? We're out. We're not fighting anymore. That was the nation of the Gibeonites. So they decided to pursue a different tactic, 
they uh, did a little bit of role-playing. They put themselves in costume, and they tricked the Israelites into making a peace treaty with them. Well, all these other kings, there were five other kings we will hear about in a second, they heard about what the Gibeonites did, and these kings were not happy with the Gibeonites because that's one other city, that's one other army that's not on their side anymore. So the five kings say, you know what? We're not going to attack Israel right away. We're going to go ahead and take out Gibeon first. Well, the Gibeonites, understandably, reach out to the Israelites. They're like, hey, we got a peace treaty, right? Time to put the peace treaty to the test. Now, the first reader, uh, if you take the text seriously, we don't actually know whether or not the treaty includes this kind of military defense. The treaty is like, okay, we won't attack you, you won't attack us, we'll play nice. But it does not say if somebody else attacks you that we're going to come to the rescue. And let's be honest, if we were selfish Israelites, we might just go, you know what? We didn't want this treaty with the Gibeonites anyway. Maybe this is convenient. This other army is going to come, wipe them off the map. We just don't have to worry about them anymore. We don't know what Israel is going to do. But it turns out, Israel makes the good upright moral choice, and they march through the night to get to the city of Gibeon and join the Gibeonites in their defense against this five-king coalition who's attacking them. Well, it turns out that the attack of the Israelites is so powerful, and God works in such mighty ways, that immediately the attacking army is just scattered, and they freak out, and the kings try to run away. So right off the bat, Israel is winning the battle. The kings are trying to flee, and that's where we pick up the story in Joshua 10, starting uh, in verse 16. Now, the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave, and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear, and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. But a few survivors managed to reach their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave. Bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. 
Then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles. And they were left hanging on the poles until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order and they took them down from the poles and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. Okay, so to summarize it all up, it's Halloween, and we're going to talk about a story about five kings being killed and impaled on poles and put up on public display. That seems like an appropriately gruesome story. It just so happened that this was the text. Preaching team put this sermon series together months ago, and this just so happened. I didn't plan it this way. I'm serious. Um, But just like we talked about kind of last week and two weeks ago, I I don't know, if you're like me and you read this story, I get a little uncomfortable. I mean, I get a little uncomfortable reading a story about God's people doing some kind of brutal things. I mean, just talking about warfare in general in, in modern day is a complicated enough story, but then to take it and put it into an ancient warfare context with the assumption that this is God at work through his people, it brings up some tough questions. We talked about it two weeks ago. We're going to talk about it today in a similar way, but today uh, I think where we're going to land is pretty substantially different. And the way I want to get at it is I want to ask, as I often do, three questions of this text uh, that are going to help us get out of our modern context and into the ancient context. Here's our three questions. Uh, What is the context of ancient Warfare. If I was an ancient person living in ancient times, what did I think about? What did I believe about? What did I see and experience about warfare in the world around me? Second, based on that context, what is the story actually about? Most all good stories, good narrative has some sort of a point that's trying to be communicated that the reader will presumably catch on to. If we read it with just our own eyes, we're liable to come to a different conclusion, make the main point a different main point than if we read it with ancient eyes. And third, finally, what do we do with this? What do we do with a story like this in our scripture? So uh, first, what is the context of ancient warfare? Now, (laughs) I'm so excited. I got to read so much fun ancient literature, ancient Egyptian literature, uh, ancient Hittite literature, I didn't even know Hittite literature was a thing. I mean, I guess I did. I'm sure I was taught that at some point, but I was reminded of it. And the story of Joshua historically is put into a genre called a conquest narrative. And it turns out that ancient peoples loved writing conquest narratives. Really fun thing to do. What'd you do this weekend? Oh man, read some conquest narratives if you want to read some just let me know. I will send the PDF your way. But you don't have to wait because we're going to read from one of the greats, uh, the Egyptian pharaoh, Tutmos III. Now, I know he's everybody's favorite pharaoh, and you've already read the conquest narrative of Tutmos III, but in case you don't remember it, let me remind you. Tutmos is attacking some enemies. We don't find out who the enemy is. They don't even want to name the enemy. He just calls them some insult. I don't remember. You'll see it in the text. And Tutmos is meeting with his military advisors, and they're devising their plan of attack. And it turns out 
they're here in Egypt or wherever the campaign starts, and the enemy's over there, and I guess there's three roads. You can go on the road to the right to get to the enemy. You can go on the road to the left to get to the enemy, or you can go the middle road to get to the enemy. Now, Pharaoh's advisors are very clear. They're like, Tutmos, pretty obvious answer. The right road and the left road, they're big. They're paved. Brand new asphalt. Smooth roads. If you're going to move an army, take the big smooth road. Like, no-brainer, because the middle road, Tutmos, it's like a walking path. We're going to have to go single file. There's cliffs. The enemy's just going to be waiting there. They're going to throw rocks down on our head. We're all going to die. Tutmos, don't take the middle road. You know what he does? Do you know what he takes? The middle road. And everybody's freaking out because they think they're going to take the middle road and they're going to be ambushed and they're going to die. So that's the background. That's where we get when we get to this part of the ancient text. Then his majesty issued forth at the head of his army, which was prepared in many ranks. Many ranks just means single file, right? Many ranks, single file. He had not met a single enemy. Then his majesty rallied his troops, saying, They are fallen. While that wretched enemy watched for us in the wrong place, we have arrived to surprise them. May ye give praise to Amun. May he extol the might of his majesty, because his arm is greater than that of any king. It has indeed protected the rear of his majesty's army in Aruna. Okay, so interesting thing to note. And what we see in this text, we actually see in a lot of ancient texts. The leader makes a strategic military decision, and he makes the right decision. But the moment that decision is proven true, who gets the credit? Amun, which is the god of the Egyptians. Strategic decision is made. The God is given the credit, which hints, you know, illustrates to us the first thing we need to recognize about ancient warfare. The assumption at all times, in all places, is that in ancient times, gods win wars. I don't care whose army is stronger. I don't care whose strategy is better. I don't care what tactics or techniques you use. If you win a war, the reason you won the war is because your God won that war for you. That is the assumption. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what your thoughts are about modern warfare. But for me, that's not a default thought of mine. That's not like the first thing that comes to my mind when I read headlines about war going on in the world today. I think lots of other thoughts, and that's not usually one of them. I don't usually say, okay, who's the god of that, those two countries that are fighting and which god? No, completely different. So if we want to think with ancient eyes, uh, the first thing we need to think is that the assumption is gods win wars. Second thing, uh, second text, this one um, from Scripture, and I apologize, I'm going to go get my cup of tea because my throat's doing a thing right now. And I'm going to drink a cup of tea. Um, This one comes from the book of 2 Samuel. The Israelite king David um, is leader of God's people, the nation of Israel at this time. And it's just a short little passage uh, that I'm going to read to you to make the second point. 
In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Just the second little line. It just sounds like an aside. In the spring, when kings go out to war, you know, like you do in the spring. Oh, it's springtime. Let's clean out the garage. Let's go on a hike in the mountains. Let's have a picnic. And of course, we've got our annual springtime warfare to embark on. If you were an ancient person, your assumption would be that warfare warfare was commonplace. It was an acknowledged, accepted, average, everyday part of your life. It was so commonplace that you even knew the time of the year when all the kings would get up their little armies and go out and engage in warfare together. And not only was warfare commonplace, people would have just assumed it's a thing, but it turns out it was a pretty gruesome affair. We're going to pick up the story of the Egyptian conquest narrative right after they've established victory. Then the entire army rejoiced and gave praise to Amun because of the victory which he had given to his son on this day. They lauded his majesty and extolled his victories. Then they presented the plunder which they had taken. Hands, living prisoners, horses, and chariots of gold and silver, and of painted work. Okay, a lot of things in that list make sense to me, but hands? <laughs> like I just won a battle with another people, and as part of the plunder, my soldiers bring to me hands? Turns out the translator um, recognized that you and I might not get this. So the translator actually included a note that I cut out. Here's the translator's note. Hands cut off as spoils of war. I mean, it's Halloween and all, but like... So the assumption is, the common practice is, once I've defeated the army, both fallen soldiers, but also quite possibly enemy soldiers who had been taken captive or captured alive, their hands would be cut off. And that would be uh, a symbol of the victory and a form of war spoils. It was also a way to ensure that the enemy soldiers would not be able to fight against you again in the future. And it turns out that words like torture and mutilation and dismemberment show up pretty frequently in some of these ancient war narratives. So think about this. Warfare was incredibly commonplace. People understood it as a normal part of their daily life. And on top of that, warfare was brutal. If your nation lost, your own life and safety might well be at work. And not just the actual fighting is brutal, but apparently the the cultural norms around it was incredibly brutal. So brutal that, in fact, the argument I made two weeks ago the conquest narratives, the descriptions of war in in Scripture might actually have been seen as pretty mild and merciful forms of warfare compared to the standards in ancient times. One example of this we actually see is that kind of gruesome image of the five kings being impaled on poles. 
But the thing that I think would have been really striking to the first audience is that at the end of the day, they took the bodies down and they put them in a cave and covered it with rocks. They, in fact, buried the bodies. Common practice may more have likely been to just leave them there forever. And in ancient cultures, if you're not buried, that is a serious religious concern and offense. But the Israelites treated these kings, according to ancient standards, probably quite mercifully by giving them a burial. Okay, so we've got our minds in this gruesome graphic warfare context of ancient peoples. And now we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, so what is the story actually about? What, like, what is this trying to communicate to us? First, I want to remind us of a couple conclusions we've sort of already made. First, we said this is a story about God's desire to bless all people. That's been made abundantly clear from the beginning. So when we run into some tricky questions, some weird contextual things, we have to say to ourselves, how does this become a story about God seeking to bless all people? Second, um, like we said a couple weeks ago, and I just made the point right now, this is a story about a God who challenges humanity towards greater mercy and justice. Israel's warfare was being engaged in a way that to us looks gruesome and horrible, but to ancient eyes might well have looked merciful and kind, like like a more true version of justice than was common in the ancient world. But the point I want to make from this text today is that this is a story about trusting God's ways over our ways. And I want to highlight that by just looking at one short phrase that, that kind of, I think, would have jumped out to the original reader. It was from Joshua chapter 10, verse 20, which we read earlier. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely, but a few survivors managed to reach their fortified cities. Their fortified cities. Why is that significant? Why would that jump out of the page? It turns out that for the next chunk of verses from from verse 28 and following, there's going to be an emphasis on a whole bunch of different fortified cities. So let me get you into the mindset of an ancient military commander. So just take a second and imagine yourself. I know you probably do this regularly anyway, but imagine yourself as an ancient military commander, right? And you just won a battle. One of the first thoughts that is going to come to your mind after you've won a battle against another nation is that you need to make sure you capture and occupy the fortified cities. Why? Because an army standing in the middle of a field is not a very safe army. If you want your army to be safe and secure and and to really take over a nation, you need to take over the fortified cities. The strength of the cities is the strength of the nation. But you know what it is that God commands Joshua to do? We read about it in chapter 10, verse 28. That day Joshua took Makeda. He put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. Now, I made the argument a couple weeks ago that this phrase, totally destroyed everyone in it, may well have been military, sort of hyperbole, commonplace. I don't think we have to conclude that there was, um, uh, there was uh, non-combatants murdered in this context. Uh, but rather, it's just a way to say, we really totally won. Kind of like if your football team wins on a Sunday, you might say, oh, they destroyed the other team. 
But that team does, in fact, still play the next day. They're not dead, right? We do the same thing in our language. But it's interesting because it says he put the city to the sword. And then there's this phrase after phrase after phrase as a phrase where Joshua destroys city after city after city after city. Uh, you can read the names of all the cities in, uh, uh, there they are, in, in the scripture. But the point being that it seems like if the common practice was for a king to occupy all the cities and make those cities my strength, God is saying, no, 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 no. We're going to do things a different way. I'm actually going to have you destroy the cities because I don't want you to trust the standard practices of the day. The whole point of this story is that I want you to trust in me, your God. God ordered Joshua to destroy the cities. And I think to the first audience, that would have been a resounding indicator that this is a story about Israel trusting their God to work in their God's ways. I mean, if you were an ancient person and you were just like, you know what, I'm going to go shopping around for a new God, um, there would be plenty of gods on offer whose main approach to life would just be, hey, kill everybody, be super brutal, and we'll win this together. That was just sort of, it wouldn't have been hard to find that type of practice. And Israel had a God who was saying, no, we're going to do things different. And the point of the story is that you can learn to trust not the wisdom of the world, not what's normal or commonplace in the countries around you, but you can learn to trust in the way that I'm going to do things. And so for you and me, if we start to kind of get a feel for what this story of Joshua is doing, we're going to realize that this is a story about a God who expands the boundaries of justice and mercy, something God continues to do in our lives today, and he simultaneously expands the boundaries of our trust in him. And if that's true, we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with a story like this? And here's the question I want us to think about. We've kind of already prompted the question this morning. What methods, what powers, what strategies do you trust in in your life? If you were to take a second right now and look at the challenges, the obstacles, the problems, the dilemmas that you're facing in your life, health, relationship, finances, I don't know what it is. If you were going to look at the challenges you're facing in your life, heck, even joys, celebrations, good gifts that you're holding on to, and you're going to say, what do I do with this? Where is it that you put your trust? Let me give you an example. Um, I, ca I continue to think quite a bit and reflect quite a bit on uh, my sabbatical from last summer. And it was just a really significant time of, of me reflecting on a lot of things, but one thing I haven't talked much about is I've been reflecting, and since then I've actually been doing just some reading and some personal praying on the question, what does it mean for me to be a pastor? And here's one of the reasons that's such a critical question. See, if you were to go on Amazon and look up books on what it means to be a pastor, you'd find lots of books. And there's a lot of books that would give an answer that is some variation on this theme. If you want to be a good pastor, you need to be a good organizational leader. You need to get a good vision and mission. You've got to have a strategy. You need to communicate that strategy 
regularly and effectively in large group settings and in small group settings. You need to organize your finances well. You need to run your church maybe more like a business because, you know, if you don't do that, it's probably just going to be organizationally bad. There's a lot of books that will give that advice. And to be, to be honest, there's probably a lot of really good advice in there. The problem is none of that, in my mind, really exemplifies trusting God with God's church. It may well be that part of my responsibility is to be wise in all of these different areas of leadership. It's certainly not all up to me. We do this together, but I feel this. However, it's really easy for me to put all of my trust in those methods instead of putting my trust in the God who owns this church to begin with. So what methods do you trust in in your life? Which brings us, as always, to your move. And I want to really put a point on it by reminding us of just what the methods of God look like. Because as we've said many times, there's one place, one central place, one central image that puts God's methods on display more than anything else. And that is his choice to come to earth and be with us. God himself in human form. The most powerful and capable human of all time who chooses not to wield that power in worldly ways, but rather to give it up. The Apostle Paul wrote wrote about it in what may be one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture describing how God works in this world. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you want to know what it looks like to trust God's ways above our ways, here's the key of it all. You take whatever power, whatever resources, whatever skills, whatever abilities, whatever it is that God has given you, you say, I want to be like Christ in this. I'm going to take what God's giving me and not use it just to my own advantage, but give it up for the good of others. As we've been considering this throughout Joshua, we've said there's three practices that might make this all the more real in our lives. Meditate on God's word. Maybe this week you take that passage from Philippians. Speak it. Talk about it. Think it. Maybe you memorize it. What would it look like to get God's word so deep in our hearts that it doesn't feel different or weird or radical to choose to trust God? It feels almost natural. Practice curiosity. When we look at our lives and we say, there's no way I could see God's presence there, choose to say, but I'm going to stay curious because I know God's at work, so I'm going to stay curious until I can finally see him. Cultivate joy. Our world loves to sow fear and concern and division, but God invites us instead to choose the joy of knowing that he is with us. Whatever it is, here's what I'd love you to think about this week in your life. Do you trust 
God's ways. Would you pray with me? God, like we've already said, we confess there's so many skills and techniques and books and seminars. There's, there's just so many things that we can be tempted to put our trust in. We know that some of this is good, but, but we just acknowledge that God often, all of this takes our eyes off of you. I'd ask for all of us, help us to know any place in our lives where we're putting our trust somewhere other than in you. And help us today and help us this week. Help us in our homes. Help us in our jobs. Help us every day of our lives, everywhere we go. Help us to learn to place our trust entirely in you. Amen.